North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Dr. Victor Cha and I are joined today by one of our favorite people, the author, Ramon Pacheco Pardo, who has a brand new book out called Shrimp to Whale, South Korea from the Forgotten War to K-pop. Ramon, you've lived twice in South Korea and you remain a regular visitor there for both work and leisure. You're a great observer of this stuff. You're, of course, professor of international relations at King's College in London, and you're the KFVUB Korea chair at the Brussels School of Government at Geez, I can't pronounce that. <laughs> no, it's a Free University of Brussels. It's the uh, University of Brussels? Free University of Brussels. I don't know how to pronounce it myself. <laughs> uh, it's, it's Dutch. I, I cannot tell you pronunciation. Free University of Brussels is just fine. Well, Ramon, it's great to have you here. And tell us about your new book. Yeah, thanks for having me. I mean, uh, the, the book is essentially a, a history of South Korea. Foundation of the country all the way until the elections this year. Focusing on uh, politics, economics, society, and culture. And basically trying to bring all of them together for a general audience, not, not for academics, but for a general audience, people who are interested in the country, really. It's amazing. And so it's been called a wonderful introduction to contemporary Korea history, and, and it shows how a small nation's transformed into a vibrant, dynamic society. This is something that Victor and I talk about all the time on this podcast. What did you find in you know, researching it from the beginnings to what it is now? I think two things that really underline the book itself, right? And they're the whole argument. I mean, first of all, the, the strength of Korean society in bringing change to the country. I mean, society, if we look at economics, it's not only the workers, of course, also the, the chevel, other companies as well. If we talk about politics, it's, it's, it's people when they go to vote, but also when they protest, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And when it comes to culture, the K-pop bands that we all know about, the film directors. Uh, so that's one thing. And, and the other thing I think is uh, the way the country has been transformed in a very remarkable way uh, that few countries have in such a short period of time because it was so poor. Authoritarian, of course, as well. Frankly speaking, if you look at the culture part because of censorship, the transformation has been dramatic since democratization. So those changes as well uh, underpin the whole argument of the book. And, and, and that's what I really try to focus on. What was the writing process for you like? It was quite interesting because I thought about the book for many years. And then when I proposed it to the publishers, this was uh, right before the pandemic hit. And I sent the contract as the pandemic, COVID-19 uh, pandemic was, was, was hitting uh, Europe, US, rest of the world. So I was writing it during the pandemic itself. So in a sense, it helped me because I had to be at home, right? Of course, I was with my family, with my daughter, etc. But, but I had to be at home. So, so I was writing here and there when I could. But 
because we were not going to university, we were not traveling. In a sense, it gave me more time to actually sit down and write the book. And it was the, the whole year process. But it was very enjoyable. It was the first book I wrote, which was not an academic book or an academic article. And I find it very enjoyable because, as you said, I had done the whole research uh, over the years. I knew what I wanted to say. And it came out quite easily, I have to say, when I was, uh, when I was actually writing the book. That's amazing. I, you know, my book project during the uh, pandemic did not go as well, but I know that you and Victor are both uh, prolific and you both have a new book coming out in June. So, Victor, I want to bring you into this conversation. Yeah, yeah. Well, first, it's great to have Ramon with us. I know that because Ramon is on our podcast, that we'll have a lot of European listeners to this episode. So yes. I, I just ask that you subscribe to this podcast and all CSIS podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Mm -hmm. So yes, we uh, we are collaborating on a new book that's coming out in June, published by Yale University Press. So we're very excited about it. It's sort of an American-European collaboration. You know, I'm kind of older in this field, and Ramon is sort of you know, leading the charge of these younger scholars in the field now. So it's a great opportunity. And it's a broader book about both North and South Korea, also pitched to a general audience. And we don't really feel like there's there has been a book like this in the market for quite some time. So we're really excited about it. And um, uh, we finished writing it for the most part, and now it's in production. So it's truly a transatlantic collaboration. And our European listeners are, are going to jump all over, and I know that, as well as our Americans. So what are the differences that stood out to you, Ramon, when you were writing your first book about North Korea, famous North Korea-U.S. relations from Kim Jong-il to Kim Jong-un? What was it like, you know, writing about North Korea then versus writing about South Korea now? It was interesting. I mean, the first book, of course, was, was a bit more academic, but even the research process, when writing about South Korea... A fundamental difference is there's so many people you can talk to. Of course, you can read much more and you can read different opinions, right-leaning, left-leaning, in, in the middle of all of it. But also you can talk to so many people, uh, business people, NGOs, academics, of course, uh, government people. And you get all these different perspectives and you try to bring them together. Uh, and I think that's a key difference that I find very enjoyable because you could get different views and you could get challenged on your views as well, right? So I remember this... Uh, for example, I was talking to many women, so one of the things I discussed in the book, the, the, the changing role of women in, in society and, and how they had different views. Some of them were saying, well, you should talk about the successes over time. Some of them were saying, well, you should talk about the inequality that still exists in the country. So this is just one example, but talking about culture was the same. You could talk to some of the artists or the companies or, or fans and, and they were saying, well, I, I love this band. And some others who said, well, I don't really like modern culture. I prefer you know, traditional Korean culture. And is this really Korean culture? So those debates that you can have in an open society. And of course, with, with North Korea, you, you can't really uh, do that. So that was the, the fundamental difference, I would say, between the two books. And that one, I would say, being able to go travel to South Korea as often as you want, right? Obviously not during the pandemic or before the pandemic. And now they're starting to be, to, to be over and, and, and see by yourself. Well, so, you know, talking about North Korea, Victor, obviously, we've had a lot of news with North Korea re recently. And for anybody who, you know, follows Victor's work, you know, there's a lot of it out there on our website right now. And of course, on Victor's site, Beyond Parallel, uh, where our satellite imagery and analysis surrounding North Korea is held. Victor, what are your thoughts about the recent North Korean missile test that flew over Japan? So it was, uh, we haven't seen a missile test over Japan in five years. I mean, 
just thinking about it, it's pretty provocative to fly a weapon, a ballistic missile over another country, and one that happens to be the third largest economy in the world. So it definitely got a lot of attention. It's at a time when the United States is quite distracted by other issues. We're focused on the war in Europe. We're focused on China and the Taiwan Straits. Uh, what's happening in Iran today, inflation at home. I mean, there are a whole host of things. And the North Korea issue has is kind of actually fallen to the back burner, I feel like. But this missile test over Japan was kind of a wake-up call. And it was followed by then short-range ballistic missile tests in the waters between Korea and Japan. And then the flying of about a dozen bombers up to the line between North and South Korea. So you know, North Korea is really pushing the envelope these days. They've, they've, they were pretty quiet in the first year of the Biden administration, and now they're quite vocal in ways that we haven't seen in, in quite some time. And it's going to force the Biden administration to pay more attention to this. I'm not saying that like they're not paying attention to it because you know, the militaries in Korea, Japan, and the United States are very engaged. I'm sure they tracked every one of these missiles from the start to the finish, collecting a lot of information about them. But from a sort of high-level policy perspective, it just hasn't gotten a lot of attention. And I think it will now. And was this a typical North Korea, hey, you're not paying attention to us, so this is you know, what we're going to do to get you to pay attention to us? I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is that they're taking advantage of the United States having a full plate to use this as an opportunity to really cement their status as a nuclear weapon state, just to have everybody have to accept the fact that they're a nuclear weapon state. They have said publicly that they're to play on U.S. policy language. We've always asked for irreversible denuclearization of North Korea. The North Koreans have responded by saying that they are pursuing irreversible nuclearization. So that there is no negotiation that they will engage in anymore to denuclearize. So I think they're taking advantage of U.S. distraction. They're cementing their position as a nuclear weapon state. And they know that they have China and Russia on their side now in a way that wasn't the case. For example, when I was doing negotiations, the North Koreans were always worried that the Chinese or the Russians were going to cut a deal with the U.S. behind their backs. They don't have that concern now. And, and so I think they feel like they're in a pretty strong position. You know, Victor, something that I've been thinking about lately because it's been in the news with regard to Russia, Ukraine, is we've been talking a lot about Russia's tactical nuclear weapons. They're small nuclear weapons that can be, that are fractional uh, to uh, H-bomb, things like that, that can be used tactically to blow up a military base, for instance. Is this something that North Korea, and this is to both of you, is this something that North Korea is pursuing as well? I think so. They've stated as much. You know, we're still waiting for this seventh nuclear test. And I think most experts bet it's going to be some sort of test of some sort of tactical, a smaller, higher yield nuclear device that could be used on the battlefield. So I think that that is certainly what they're after. And and the reason they're after something for that is they want to be able to show that they don't have to escalate immediately to nuclear-tipped ICBM, that they are able to employ nuclear weapons or the threat of nuclear weapons on the battlefield to overcome conventional capability inferiority to South Korea and the United States. So they can use this just as Putin has used it to threaten NATO not to intervene. Uh, they can use it for the same purpose to say to the South Koreans or the Japanese or others, don't get involved, right? That we have this capability that could be devastating to you and to your forces. So I think this is part of their effort to be a modern nuclear weapon state, which is to have capabilities, not just at the high end, the sort of 
you know, big missile with a nuclear weapon on top of it, but also to have uh, capabilities that work their way up the escalation ladder. Ramon, can I ask you for your thoughts on this? Pretty similar, because now in, in Europe, we're seeing an open threat that this might be used, right, in Ukraine. So uh, similarly to the U.S., our focus is not necessarily on North Korea, but these parallels have been drawn, right, between what Putin is threatening uh, to do in, uh, in Ukraine and what uh, North Korea is telling us is uh, building up to, right, which is having these, these capabilities. And this completely changes the equation if there is any conflict, right? When it comes to Ukraine, NATO cannot intervene. It's as simple as that, right? It can, it can support Ukraine, but there's this threat that it has to take into consideration. And, and the thinking would be similar if North Korea threatens to use them, or there's a potential threat that North Korea could use tactical nuclear weapons, it has to make everyone think twice about what they can do in, in case of conflict. And uh, not only that, I mean, we're seeing increasing cooperation between uh, North Korea and Russia, or North Korean support for Russia, right? And, and uh, there's this discussion now in Europe, we don't know what's going on behind closed doors between the two of them. We, we think, for example, North Korea has been supplying uh, weapons or technology maybe even to Russia, obviously there's a diplomatic support. So could this happen the other way, right? Once Russia is in a better position, uh, you know, when, when situation in Ukraine, the war in Ukraine uh, finishes, there's some sort of, uh, of deal in a few years' time, could Russia be helping uh, North Korea in the way North Korea is helping now Russia? So that's a real concern in Europe right now. And what is our ability, if any, to deter this? Well, you know, that's the interesting thing because we're increasingly ending up in a situation where we are relying on North Korean rationality, right? And what I mean by that is, yes, you know, the military is continuing to build capabilities. So, right, so we're moving into next next generation missile defense, right? We're we're doing trilateral exercising with Korea and Japan. You know, we're doing all sorts of things to try to maintain a strong deterrent threat. But in the end, all of that deterrent threat is based on the rationality of North Korea. The notion that they understand that if they were to start something that the retaliation would be so devastating that it would not be worth the candle, whatever they're considering doing. And that to me is very ironic because how do we talk about North Korea, right? Unpredictable, irrational, the impossible, the leadership is, is opaque, right? All these sorts of things. And yet the core of our military strategy rests on the rationality of North Korea. So it's a big bet that we're making, in part because the diplomacy is not going anywhere, right? We have no diplomatic negotiations going on with North Korea. The sanctions are not really having impact. Are they hurting North Korea? Yes, but at the same time, North Korea has been on a self-imposed COVID zero lockdown since January of 2020, right? Since January of 2020. And as part of that lockdown, they were not even accepting anything from China as well. So diplomacy is not working, sanctions are not working. We can't really get a UN Security Council resolution anymore because China and Russia aren't going to support it. So we're stuck focusing on military deterrence, which is fine, and that's a responsible thing to do. But peace, stability, entirely rests on our hoping that North Korea is rational. Are they rational at all, Ramon? <laughs> I mean, that's the big question, right? I think they are. Having said that, we thought that Putin was rational, and then he launched an invasion of Ukraine, which we all think is irrational. Probably many people in Russia think, well, what's going on? Why is, why is this happening? Obviously, the situation is very different, uh, Russia, Ukraine, and the two Koreas. I mean, even President Biden said the other day that, you know, Putin's a rational actor. He just made a mistake, which is debatable. I mean, maybe he's not rational. Right. And then you look at every other leader that, that's engaged with Putin, right? Gates, Condi Rice, and others, and they all say that there's something not right about 
what he's doing now. So something that he's not all, he's not the same person that they remembered. It's very confusing. And we know even less about the North Koreans. Exactly right. Because, and we have had European leaders, Macron, Scholl, for example, talk to Putin, right? And try to bring him to his senses, uh, so to speak. And they have been unable. And this is someone they can actually talk to, right? They can talk leader to leader. And we can't do that with North Korea. So, I mean, I still assume that they are uh, rational and we have decades uh, of history to back this up, but you never know, right? You never know with these leaders. And it goes back to, to the point that Victor was making about deterrence. That's why deterrence is so, is so important because even if you are rational, well, you can understand, right, that you would be destroyed, right? If you uh, launch any sort of a strike on South Korea, US forces or Japan. Uh, and that's what we're hoping in the case of, of, of North Korea. And we think, well, North Korean regime has understood it for many decades and hope that they will continue to do so. But going back to what I just mentioned, what we have seen with uh, Putin now, there are many in Europe who start to doubt that people who are being in power for, for four decades, right, as dictators essentially in their countries, uh, that they can really think in the way that you can in, in other countries where you have checks and balances, right? And others will make you be rational, even if you're not. So deterrence is held. I mean, I agree with Ramon. Deterrence is held on the Korean Peninsula since 1953, right? North Koreans have not attempted another invasion of South Korea since 1953. But when we think about deterrence on the peninsula, we think of it largely in terms of conventional deterrence, right? North Korea is not going to attack again like they did in 1953. You know, North Korea is now, not it's not 1953, it's 2022, and North Korea is now you know, has capacity in the developmental stages to hold the United States hostage, right? To hold U.S. cities, certainly Guam, we know that Hawaii, probably the West Coast of the United States and beyond that hostage. Um, it's not a deployed capability, but they, but it's in developmental stages and they've tested it, right? And so the question is, if North Korea feels like it can hold U.S. cities hostage, is it rational for them to then think they can coerce South Korea? Because this isn't 1953. North Korea could not threaten U.S. cities, the homeland of the United States, in 1953. They credibly can do that now. So from their perspective, do they feel it's rational for them to be more belligerent towards South Korea and Japan when they know they, they feel they can hold the United States at bay? That's rational also to think that way. And so, you know, so this is the question, like whether you're in power for 50 years or if you acquire capabilities that change the way you think, change your cost, your benefit calculation. You know, these are the things we have to worry about. And, and my point is like right now, the only thing that we're relying on is building up our military capabilities in the belief that it will continue to deter the North Korean leader from doing anything untoward with regard to allies or to the United States. And so it's it's a big bet, right? It's a big bet. And it can't be based, based on like 1953 sort of calculations that, oh yeah, they're deterred. They know if they do anything, they'll be, they'll be destroyed, right? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because most Americans aren't perceiving the North Korean threat that acutely. We're not thinking they're going to blow up Honolulu. We're not thinking, you know, they're going to launch an attack on Los Angeles. But the reality is, is that they could or they're close to being able to. So we don't have that fear level in the United States. But Ramon, what's the fear level in South Korea where it's right under their nose? That's very interesting, right? Because, uh, I mean, I just came back from South Korea. And it seems that 
it hasn't changed much. The, the society all feels well. Uh, there is another uh, North Korean test. But when you talk to uh, security types, uh, government officials, right, or, or those in the opposition, obviously they feel this is not a business as usual because of what we're discussing. Because the moment North Korea has uh, tactical nuclear weapons, uh, then the thinking has to be different. Well, they're already thinking about North Korea essentially having them, right? We cannot just wait for, for the test, so to speak. They have to assume that they, that they have the capabilities. So those in a position of uh, power or taking decisions, so those kind of position in the future, maybe, maybe in power as well, they're already thinking about this scenario. So there's this uh, disconnect, I would say, between society that focuses on other matters, um, like in most countries across the world, economic and search, for example, uh, and, and those who have to think about these things, who think that, well, the level of the third level has, has risen. This is, for example, why you see the emphasis from the current government uh, on these joint exercises with the US, but also trilateral exercises that also involve uh, Japan, because they feel they need them uh, as a way to show to uh, North Korea, A, South Korea is not alone, uh, but B, we have different ways of deterring you or to, if necessary, hopefully not, obviously, to counter-strike. Yeah, so I mean, that that's the picking up on the last point, that is part of the direction in which South Korea is going now, which is that, well, I mean, there's some in South Korea that want to have nuclear weapons too, but that's a whole other discussion. But the answer is is to have strike capabilities, to be able to preempt or even de decapitate the North Korean leadership. And the North Korean response to that is automation, that they are going to now have a capacity to automatically respond with nuclear retaliation if the leadership is under is under attack. So, you know, so we see a classic sort of action reaction spiral. I think among the general public in South Korea's romance is like they're not as agitated about this because they've been living under a North Korea threat for decades. Um, but I think sort of among the policymakers and the military people, there's been more talk about something called kill chain, right, and decapitation strikes focusing on preemptive or preventive capability to attack North Korea before they are attacked. Yeah, I was going to say something I found very interesting as well uh, is that coming from Europe, one of the big discussions that South Koreans want to have with Europeans is about what's going on in Ukraine because they feel Ukraine has been very successful uh, in dealing with uh, missiles, for example, uh, uh, coming from Russia. And this is down to technology, right? Uh, transferred by the US, transferred by European uh, countries. So they're really looking into this, maintaining the technological advantage, uh, which I think many South Koreans feel they have over North Korea, if you look at the many conventional capabilities, for example, and how this could be deployed in case of conflict, right? So being there, there were so many questions about NATO, and so many questions about Ukraine, and so many questions about not so much why the war has happened, what is Russia thinking, but what is Ukraine doing and how NATO is helping NATO and the US, of course, is helping Ukraine, I wouldn't say defeat Russia, but certainly defend itself very successfully against uh, this Russian invasion. It's amazing. The world seems to have become a, a much scarier place in the last, you know, six months, year or so. And, you know, and the, the threat that we're dealing with from North Korea you know, really ups the ante. And it's been kind of, until now, it's been, you know, in recent days, it's been pushed down by the war in Ukraine. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think it's um, one of the things that the war in Europe has done is it's really connected the European and the Asian theaters, the Indo-Pacom theater, as well as the European theater in ways that, like I know, like in Ramon has been in the center of a lot of this in Europe. 
a lot more trans-Pacific, transatlantic dialogues on um, security in Europe and security in Asia among a lot of like-minded countries. Because as you said, Andrew, it's become a scarier and more certain place, but it's also become a smaller place. The world has be become much smaller where they see connections between Ukraine, Taiwan, and North Korea. And the North Korea piece has been sort of Traditionally, it's always been sort of a front burner issue, like during Trump, it was the front burner issue. Um, it went quiet for the first year of Biden, but now it's back with a vengeance. And, and it's coming at a time when the, you know, when the Biden administration's plate is very, very full. Yeah. And let's not forget, President Biden, you know, inherited this relationship, of course. But during the Obama administration, when Obama transitioned to Trump, I think the thing he told him was North Korea is the scariest place on earth. Yeah, and that it would be the biggest issue that he would have to deal with. And and Obama was right. I mean, it was, you know, we saw, what, 20 ballistic missile tests in Trump's first year in office. And the United States talking about potentially limited military strikes on North Korea. It was a very scary time. You know, now we don't have that sort of rhetoric flying back and forth, so-called rocket man or whatever it was, fire and fury rhetoric moving back and forth. But it's scary in a different sense because... You know, North Korea has been very methodical in what it's pursuing, you know, testing um, different types of capabilities, different types of platforms, different types of countermeasures to evade uh, both theater and national missile defense. They've been very quiet and methodical with regard to what they've been pursuing. Um, and the United States has been understandably focused on China-Taiwan and the war in Ukraine. So I think in many ways we're entering new territory. This is not you know, the media thinks, oh, it's another missile test by North Korea. It's not just another missile test. We're, I think we're in really unfamiliar territory right now. And it's not clear that the United States, Japan, South Korea have an answer. And, and, but one thing we know is that China and Russia are not going to help us. Right? And they're North Korea's most important partner. The loss of ability to have China and Russia to help us with North Korea is really a problem for us. Guys, I want to ask you one final thing. I want to ask you, South Koreans are really up in arms over inflation, over the Inflation Reduction Act. What exactly is that all about? Right. So it's interesting because as North Korea is firing all these missiles all over the place, like you talk to South Koreans or you talk to U.S. officials, you talk to South Korean officials, and all they hear about is the Inflation Reduction Act. And you know the main issue there is that uh, South Koreans feel like they're being unfairly discriminated against because the Inflation Reduction Act uh, provides a tax subsidy for electric vehicles that are, that are manufactured in the United States. And South Korea right now is the second largest uh, seller of electric vehicles in right. the U.S. behind Tesla, but they don't make the cars here. They make them elsewhere, and so they don't get the advantage of that $7,500 tax cut that a purchaser of the car makes. So they're all up in arms about that because they feel like it's going to really hurt their their business. You know, on the other side of the coin, South Korea Hyundai plans to build uh, electric vehicles in the United States. They have a plant that's scheduled to build starting from 2025. Um, and there are many other things in the Inflation Reduction Act that benefit South Korean producers of electric volt batteries, provided they're made in the United States. And in the last uh, sets of summit meetings between South Korean presidents and Biden, the South Koreans announced, you know, billions of dollars of investment in Georgia and Tennessee, 
for the purpose of building uh, these EV batteries in the United States. So, you know, on the one hand, they're freaking out about the fact that they're not getting this tax advantage of this tax subsidy. On the other hand, there are many things in the act that benefit South Korea and South Korea business going forward. And in fact, give them a substantial advantage over China going forward. But, you know, uh, it, there's obviously politics involved and the the South Korean president is under a lot of pressure because they feel like they're getting the short end of the stick. Is the Biden administration telling South Korea, just be patient, you know, these plants are going to get built and our relationship's going to become even tighter as, as a result? Is that what they're telling them? How are they trying to, you know, chill them out? Yeah. So, I think, you know, publicly, I don't I think they're saying, you know, we, we hear the South Korean concerns, you know, Vice President Harris was just recently in Korea. She was there for Shinzo Abe's funeral, and then she went to Korea. And she got an earful on the Inflation Reduction Act. And, you know, she said, we understand the Korean concerns. We're working with them. They said they've set up a bilateral channel to talk about these sorts of things. But I think, I think privately, they're probably saying to them, look, there's a lot in this IRA that's good for Korea. And on balance, this is a good thing for Korea. In the interim, between now and 2025, they may not get this tax subsidy, but uh, 2025 is not that far away. Uh, and also, uh, I don't know, you don't drive a Tesla. I don't drive a Tesla, but I think the price difference between a Tesla and a, uh, a Hyundai electronic vehicle is probably more than $7,500. So I don't know if they're really getting priced out of the competition. But uh, you know, obviously, for those who are buying who are who want to buy a Hyundai EV, it will be more expensive from now until until 2025. I mean, you know, the, I don't know what the solution will be. I mean, they could try to accelerate building of the plant at the state level with help at the state level, uh, or try to find a way to amend the legislation for countries that uh, have free trade agreements with the United States. Because the other thing the South Koreans say is that this is a violation of the U.S.-Korea free trade free trade agreement. You know, I think it's these things happen in the alliance. Um, this wouldn't be the first time. Uh, the Korean reaction is always kind of way over the top. It's like from the political counselor to the president, like everybody's first talking point is about the IRA. I mean, that's to be expected when you deal with uh, you deal with Korea. So the United States gets the message, and um, they'll see if there's a way forward. But again, there are many things in the IRA that benefit South Korea. In the long term, in the long term, uh, in ways that will make them uh, a very prominent player in this EV, battery, and, and electric vehicle market. It's fascinating, Ramon. What are you hearing from them on the ground on this issue? Similar, similar. I mean, the the, the big focus is on uh, EV cars, basically, and uh, Hyundai, uh, as Victor said, right, one of the largest sellers at, at the global level. Uh, and, and what is interesting, because this is a topic of discussion between Korea and Europe as well, right? Because some German firms, for example, they, they feel the same. They can be very public because of obviously the war in Ukraine and all the support that Europe is receiving from the U.S. But there have been discussions, for example, shall we raise this uh, together? And I think that this is unlikely uh, to happen, to be honest, because I think the Koreans are willing to be more vocal, right? What I'm hearing as well is that they feel that the Biden administration is willing to solve this issue, right, in a way that, that supports... Korea-U.S. relations, or, or in this case, Germany-U.S. Uh, relations as well, right? And it could be through the FTA, as you say, in the case of, of Korea, as this is a solution. Uh, but it could uh, also be by discussing this notion of friendly countries. Right now, there's a discussion about the uh, friend sharing, right, that we are hearing. Uh, that we are hearing. 
uh, or also uh, some Koreans think that because Hyundai is going to build a factory here, right? Not only the acceleration that uh, Victor mentioned, but because there is the agreement actually that the factory is going to be built, that they could actually benefit, say, well, in the interim, right, until the factory is, is, is built, you will actually receive some uh, subsidies as well, so some tax advantages uh, uh, as well. So I think it's very much uh, up in the air. And I also hear from the Koreans that we have to wait until the, the elections here in the US, obviously, right? That before the elections, nothing is going to happen for obvious reasons, and then, and then take it from there. That's the refrain. Let's wait until after the elections, right? <laughs> well, gentlemen, Ramon, thank you very much for being with us today. Again, uh, listeners, the book is Shrimp to Whale, South Korea, From the Forgotten War to K-Pop. Go out and get it. It's awesome. Victor, thank you as always for being here. Ramon, we'll catch up with you very soon. Thanks for having me. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.